invite you to take your scriptures back, turn back to that Luke 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, passage we read a little earlier. Also, if you would keep in your prayers, I've been talking to Kino Rolone, and Nancy's been in the hospital, as we mentioned a little earlier in a previous service, um, but she's on a ventilator. Um, she's really um, been sedated, so she can't respond, but she's had lung problems since very early in her life, and... Uh, but she has a difficulty, a new difficulty in her lung. Not sure the serious nature. It's obviously of a serious nature, but not sure how serious yet. And she's on medication and treatment, and they're doing many things for her. She's in the Voorhees Hospital. Um, and uh, so it's very hard. I know, as you might imagine, they've been married for 58 years. And to watch your loved one and not sure what's happening, and then they can't respond. Pray for Nancy. Pray for Kino and their family in a very difficult, uncertain time. Um, I know that they would very much appreciate your prayers. Luke chapter 8, sorry, chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. What is your favorite cereal? When I was growing up, mine was Fruit Loops. How many like Fruit Loops? They still have those, right? Yeah, good. Then I like Frosted Flakes. Any Frosted Flake fan? Wow. Seems to be the Christian thing to do, right? Um, Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries. <laughs> right? And, and they had a lot of them. Um, Apple Jacks used to be out there. Honeycomb. I don't know if they do a lot of these anymore. Cheerios. Okay, okay, I gotta say Cheerios. Anybody do Cheerios? Okay. Yeah, I, got, I see a lot of those. Yep. Um, but then, I don't, you've noticed, it's been probably more time than I think, but years ago, they started making, off the, making these knockoff cereals. Have you seen them? Instead of Fruit Loops, they have Fruity Hoops. <laughs> Captain Crunch has become Crispy Crunch. Cocoa Pebbles, Cocoa Nuggets. Rice Krispies have become Crispy Rice. There's an ingenious, just switch the words around. Tricks has become Pranks. And my thought is, who do they think they're fooling? Right? I mean, they're frauds, they're phonies, they're forgeries, they're fakes. If you're serious about cereal, right, you'll know that the box looks similar, the name sounds similar, same vocabulary, different dictionary, right? They're they're trying to fool you, but when you open the box and you get on the inside of the contents, you pour it in your bowl, you know it's not the same. There's only one Fruit Loops. And fruity hoops don't cut it, right? Because, listen, it's a knockoff. It's a lookalike. It seems to be the real thing, but in the end, it's an imposter. See, that's what is in front of us in Luke chapter 2. See, Christmas is all about God in heaven bringing true peace on the earth through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the world, see, the world around us, and maybe you've experienced it, the world offers its own kind of peace. See, it's an alternative kind of peace. An earthly peace, the one that America offers, it sounds the same. They use the same words. In fact, they use the biblical phrases on Christmas cards. If you send them out, they're not all become, you know, from Christmas or, or Christian organizations. Secular people, they send out cards, peace on earth. It's the biblical phrase. That's where it comes from. But they don't mean the same thing by it. 
See, the box on the outside of peace on earth that the world offers, it looks the same, it sounds the same, they even talk the same about it, but it isn't the same. Because when you open up the world's peace and you get down into the contents of it, you'll find that it is radically different. And what too many people have experienced on the bad end of things is it's not at all what they thought it would be. And it wasn't what they, in the end, were looking for because earthly peace is a knockoff of heavenly peace. See, to really get to Luke 2, 8 through 14 and to understand it, you have to read it in comparison with Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And look how that paragraph starts. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now you say, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Well, see, that's the peace that the world's offering you get the names Caesar Augustus, and if you read any of Roman literature from the first century, here's what some of the titles of Caesar Augustus were. Ready? See if these are familiar to you. Caesar Augustus, the Savior of the world. He is the Lord. He is King of all the nations. Caesar Augustus was considered to be the Son of God. Why? Because his adopted father, Julius Caesar, who was assassinated by members in the Senate, when he died, it said that he was symbolized, his life was symbolized by a star, a shooting star that went to heaven, which meant to Roman people that he had become a god. He had taken his rightful place in the heavens and that his adopted son, Octavius, who was called Caesar Augustus, the one in our passage, was therefore because his dad was a god, that meant he was son of God. All the titles that Jesus Christ is Lord, King, Savior, Son of God. All of those were ones that Caesar called himself. You see, the world Roman peace, Pax Romana, is offered by Caesar Augustus. He touted himself to be the Savior of the world. He would be the one who would bring peace to the known world at that time. But see, Caesar peace, when you get inside the box, see, it comes from brute force. It's a peace that comes through military violence. It's one that kills people. See, it's not by faith, but by force. And the symbol of Roman peace, when you unbox it, is a sword, certainly not a cross. See, first century Roman peace is just like 21st century American peace in this way. They are fake, they are a fraud, and they are forgeries. They're knockoffs. They're not the real thing. Not even close. You see, the kingdoms of earth and the kingdoms of heaven, they are set in sharp relief with one another. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, why does Luke tell you about the time period? Because the big things going on in the world were happening in Rome. And everybody knew Caesar's name. Everybody knew who the governor of Syria was. You know why? Because they were the shakers and the movers. They were the power people. They were the ones that everybody looked to. And then you get this little backwater community right? And you get Bethlehem, and nobody knows what's going on in this little backward slave nation. But yet, see, it's not the big things going on in the world that would ever bring the peace that people look for. It couldn't come through taxation or being registered or going to your hometown. See, you really couldn't get it from anything Rome gave. The true peace doesn't come from where you think it does. See, See, Luke wants you to know, and God wants you to know, that peace comes from God in heaven 
not from men on earth. And why does he put these two paragraphs side by side? Here's why. And here's why you're here this morning. Because he wants you to make a choice. He wants everybody who reads Luke chapter 2 in the first few verses to come to the place where they have to put them side by side comparing, will I take world peace and seek to find satisfaction in that or will I take the peace that only comes through God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Everyone in this room this morning under the sound of my voice has to make that choice. That's what Luke wants. That's what God wants. He wants you to really see in your life which story of peace that you daily live in that you make your decisions from and how you run your family and your relationship and your values and your morals. He wants to know, he wants you to know, he wants you to choose which peace story you're gonna live in. Will you live with the one that's around you or the peace story from the one that is above you? In review, as I said last week, there are 12 major passages on peace in Luke's gospel. It is a major theme. Three of them the ones we're covering are from the birth narrative. We looked at Zechariah's prophecy about his son, John the Baptizer, and how he would point to the sunrise that would rise the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. This week, we're going to look at this one with the shepherds. Next week, on Christmas, we're going to look at Simeon, the three times in Luke's gospel. And here's what he has told us so far. The Christmas story and living in it and having God's peace, you can't find it on your own. And he makes a big point out of in all of these passages that we're looking at that if you're going to have heavenly peace, you have to have heavenly help. You have to have, and this is last week's text, someone guide your feet into the path of peace. You have to have someone guide you. You can't discover it on your own. When I lived in London in uh, my college years, in the summers and over Christmas break and so forth, uh, one of the things I got to do was go to the Tower of London. If, uh, if you ever get a chance to go that it's very historical. It's uh, centuries, I want to say five to seven centuries old. It's been around forever. Kings and queens, famous prisoners, even during World War II, were kept there. All kinds of crazy things. King Henry VIII had his you know, wives' heads cut off there. <laughs> Not great things, but, but it's a lot of history there. There are small uh, princes that were murdered in the building and hid under the steps. They didn't find their bones until this century. Um, there's all kinds of things. But you would never know all the things that happened there unless you had a beef eater. You know what a beef eater is? A beef eater is the guide's of the Tower of London. They have really cool uniforms. They're old, like they look like they're coming out, stepping out of history. If you ever get to go there, they come there, they talk officially, and they have this cool outfit on, and they act like they're from centuries ago in London, and they'll take you around into all places in the Tower of London, and they'll show you things and give you facts and historical value and all this stuff about what the Tower of London was, how it started, who's been here, what's happened. You wouldn't know any of that. You'd never find out. If he didn't have a guide. See, that's what the Bible says. That's what God is doing. See, John the baptizer was the guide to people to connect with Jesus. He was to point to Jesus. See, you know why the angels came to the shepherd? Because the shepherds needed a guide. They were sitting in the night in darkness, and they needed someone to guide them. They didn't even know that so close to them in Bethlehem, Jesus was being born, the king. See, next week when we find Simeon, he's going to have to have new eyes to see that when he holds that little baby in his arms in the temple, that he's holding the very Son of God. See, the Lord brought you here this morning. He brought you here. You know why? 
He guided you here because he wants to show you what the meaning of Christmas is. He wants you to understand where true peace comes from. So you might be saying, I'll put the words in your mouth, well, Pastor Walker, how do I know which source of peace I'm drawing from? How do I know which peace I'm living in? Well, here's what Luke's going to tell us, just simply two things this morning. In order to know which story of peace you're living in, you have to have two insights. Here's the first one. You must understand that there is a contrast, all right? You have to understand there's a contrast. Let me tell you, I've already started a little bit. Let me go a little further with it. There's a difference between cultural peace and Christmas peace. And let me show you the three contrasts that Luke's going to tell us about and make a point for it, right? Verses 1 and 2 and verses 8. Now, there's a contrast in places. Now, here, here's how it works. Luke is going to tell you the story about Christmas, but Christmas doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens because Israel is under the tyranny of Roman enslavement. They are a slave nation. Rome is the superpower of the world at this time, and they control all of the known world area, including Israel. And there's a con So it starts with Caesar Augustus, and he's in Rome. It starts with Quirinius, and he is governing Syria. And these are the big places. And little Israel, see, the big cities, Rome, Syria, the big places. And then you got little Bethlehem. And you got Galilee, as mentioned in verses 1 through 7. And you got Nazareth. And you know the story, what could, good could come out of Nazareth. And you have Judea. See, you got this contrast between the power. It's like talking about Washington, D.C. versus Hamilton, right? Hamilton, we like it. It's a great city, to be, but you know, everything happens in Washington or New York City or the big cities with the power and the governors and the president and all the senators. They all meet in Washington. They don't even know about Hamilton, New Jersey. See, we think if world great events are happening, it's going to happen there, somewhere over there, and all those people are going to be involved. But see, here's what he does. He contrasts. It's not in Washington, that great things happen. It's not in Rome. It's in little places where God is at work, see? It's not the big city, it's the little city. It's not the free, free place, it's the slave place. But it's not just a contrast in places, it's a contrast in people. Everybody knew, it was a household name. Caesar Augustus, the Augustus, I mean, I mean the awesome one. Caesar was the most powerful man in the world. He sat in the Oval Office of his day. Kyrenius, everybody knew them. He, they knew their wrath, their military prowess. They knew how powerful their militaries were. See, you got big names. And then, listen, in verse 8, you got the angels coming to shepherds. I mean, shepherds had absolutely no social standing or power whatsoever in ancient societies. In fact, the shepherds are there, and they don't even mention their names. They're unnamed. So you got the big names... And you got the no names. You remember growing up, maybe this is me or older, how many of you were ever in a Christmas pageant as a kid in school and you were a shepherd and you got to wear your robe to school? You remember that? Yeah, you, see, I got a couple. Sorry, Orvin, that means you're really old. So. Um, but shepherds were just, you, you put your robe on and you became a shepherd. That's all it took because they didn't have anything. That's what shepherds were. And see, Nobodies. Joseph and Mary were nobodies. Shepherds, they were nobodies. Same method. If you turn over one page, look at Luke chapter 3. He, Luke does it again because he's going to repeatedly do this throughout his gospel. 
and, and I'm going to get to the point here in a minute. He says in Luke chapter 3, this is the beginning of John the baptizer's ministry in Jesus. So how does he introduce it? The same way he did with Jesus' birth. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now look at all the big names. Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, Herod, Philip, Licinius. Then he even says Annas and Caiaphas, who are the high priests. All the tetrarchs, all the governors. You got the different Caesar who's in power. See, if anyone was looking at anything going on in the world, that's where you would expect it to happen. But where does it happen? Can I tell you this? John the baptizer starts giving his message, and he doesn't give his message to any of those guys. He doesn't start with them. He doesn't go to where they are. It's not in their cities. It's not in their places of power. None of those things. Just like the Christmas announcement. The angels do not go to Caesar Augustus. They do not give the announcement of good news to Kyrenius. They give it to unnamed, lowly shepherds, see. The word doesn't come to any of them from the angels or John the Baptist. Why? Because the last contrast. It's not just a contrast of places, a contrast of people. It's a contrast of power. See, Caesar Augustus has power over societies. Shepherds have power over sheep. See, Caesar is sitting on the throne and shepherds are sitting in the fields. See, Caesar in his hand holds a, scep a, a scepter, but the shepherds hold a staff. You couldn't get any more polar opposite than that. And the question is, why? Why does Luke bother? Why does he go to all the trouble to say all these things in the beginning of Luke 2 and 3? Here's why. God, here's how he does God chooses to reveal his glory to unnamed nobodies rather than the popular somebodies. You know why? Hear me. Because in order to have the peace of God from heaven, you have to see yourself in light of the glory of God and not compare yourself to others. Peace with God, hear me, does not come by your power. It does not come by your performance. Peace with God is not achieved because of some title behind your name or the office in the corner in the building in which you work. It's not a comparison between you and others that allows you to have the peace that you're searching for. See, I've heard a lot of people say, <coughs> Pastor Walker, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as, and they name some people that are so far out there that anybody would be pretty safe to mention. See, powerful people, people who are middle class or upper class people, see, we have a tendency to have an issue with self-salvation. And by that I mean we struggle with self-sufficiency. We believe, falsely however, that we really don't need any help with most things in life, that we can do it ourselves. See, the average person that I talk to and give the good news of the gospel of peace, they want to work at peace themselves. See, they're always seeking to reach up to God. They're not so excited about God having to reach down to them because if God has to reach down to them to bring peace into their lives and they can't achieve it on their own, see, to them it says something about them because they're used to be considering themselves high and a lot of other people consider them to be lower than them. That, hey, you know, so-and-so with this addiction, I understand why they need peace and help, but, you know, look where I live. Look at the neighborhood, look, look at the neighborhood I'm in. See, look at the job I have and the car I drive. Do you think I really need that kind of help? 
See, they're used to saying, look at me. Look at what I have done. But instead, see, here's what the gospel does. It reverses that, and it calls on you if you want peace to say, look at him and look what he has done. See, the biggest problem we have that this passage points out and why we at times miss the peace that God has for us and we forfeit it is because we lack humility. And that's why in our text, verse 9, look at it. Here's what the angel says, behold. You know why? Because if you're going to get way away from the way that you frame peace and how you can achieve it, you're going to have to be startled. You're gonna, God's going to have to get your attention. God's going to have to bring you to the place where you recognize that you can't achieve salvation on your own. So here's what the angels say. Do not be afraid, for behold. Now, if you know anything about Bi- the Bible, you'll know that anybody who experienced an actual angelic visit thought they were in serious trouble. I mean, from the very first time angels come in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had sinned and the angel with the flaming sword, the cherubim, stands at the gate and doesn't allow them back in. See, the angel appears and it's for judgment. See, you've done something wrong. And not always, but a lot of times in the Old Testament when angels appear, they're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to wreak judgment on God's enemies. They're going to do something to bring justice And God's going to wreak havoc in people's lives because of their disobedience. And the average person thinks that when an angel comes, that there might be some serious trouble coming their way. But this angel says to him, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. You see, when you were in God's presence, in this case mediated by angels, you thought you needed to fear. But when Jesus comes... See, when you were in Caesar's presence, you'd never gotten Caesar's presence unless you were probably being tried or had something major wrong. But see, Jesus says, now that I've come to the world, here's what he says. You're in God's presence, and you don't have to fear anymore. Wow, can you imagine that? Imagine this morning, if you could go home, and whatever's facing you this week, or the coming weeks, or months, that you never had to be afraid. Imagine stopping being afraid that you weren't going to be good enough anymore. That your dad or your parents who told you that you'd never measure up, that you'd never be what your sister or your brother were, that they're always seemingly disappointed. Imagine if you never had to prove yourself like that anymore. Imagine if you could stop trying to save yourself from measuring yourself against what everybody else thinks of you. And see all the things you have to do and the way that you have to talk and the way you have to act and the things that you do to your body and the things that you do. Why? Because you're always proving someone, this is who I am. See, I really am somebody. I am different. I am unique. Imagine if you didn't have to fear all those things anymore. Imagine if you could rest your head on a pillow at night, not fearing whether if you didn't wake up the next morning that you die without Christ or die and not know where you're going. See, we can stop fearing death. You know why? Because here's what the truth is. Fear always haunts us when we're seeking to save ourselves. It always haunts us. To earn your own self-worth, to construct your own identity, is a wearisome task. It is relentlessly tiresome. It is impossible to fulfill. And there is absolutely no peace in it. Trying to Every day, reinvent yourself 
looking different, your hair, your outfit, your color, to impress people, talking, acting, having things, doing things, going certain places, always trying to impress other people. Imagine if you could stop all that. And, and now in the light of that, listen, the angel says, listen, you don't have to be any afraid in my presence anymore. Here's why. Listen, because I'm bringing you good tidings, good news of mega joy. Imagine in the place of fear that you could swap it out with the joy that you can't even comprehend. That God himself would call mega joy. See, that's how Luke frames out his entire gospel. He says at the beginning of it, when Jesus comes in, that it's good news of great joy. And the very last verse of Luke says this, and they departed from the temple with great joy because Jesus had gone to heaven. See, that's what Luke's all about. That's what he wants to tell you this morning. You know what one of the results of peace with God through Jesus is? A joy that you can't explain. But it's always in Luke. It's always about Jesus. It's about his presence at his birth or in the temple because he is Lord of all. See, he says it's good news, mega joy to all people. Aren't you glad that God didn't say, hey, the good news of Christmas is, hey, if you're really rich, you can get it. Or if you're white or you're black or you're middle class or you have a certain level of education. No, here's what he says. It's a one-size-fits-all kind of peace. So he says, it's for all people, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, upper class, lower class, whether you're a big sinner, little sinner. See, here's why Jesus came into the world the way he did. You know why he came into the world the way he did? Because he wanted to humble himself to show you that anybody could have it if you would do the same. The Ball Brothers are a Christian quartet, and they have a song, not your usual type of Christmas song, because the title is, It's All About the Cross. The first verse reads like this. It's not about the manger where the baby lay. It's not all about the angels who sang for him that day. It's not all about the shepherds or the bright and shining star. It's not all about the wise men who traveled from afar. It's about the cross. It's about my sin. It's about how Jesus came to be born once so that we could be born again. You see what the songwriter's trying to say? See, Jesus came where he was, Bethlehem, how he was a slave because of who he was. And here's what the angels say. He's a savior. Jesus came to be the savior, and he's Christ the Lord. See, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. You know what Luke does? The beginning of Jesus' life, he's in cloths, and at the end of his life, in a tomb, he's wrapped in cloths. But they're not royal cloths. See, they're ones for babies and infants and slaves. See, he's wrapped that. Why? Because he came to be a different kind of king. See, there's a contrast. See, Caesar is royal, and he's in palaces, and he's got power and might, and he has no humility. And that's the kind of peace that it comes from. If you get a peace from that kind of place, see, you're going to get powerful peace, and they're going to dictate the terms, and they can't relate to you on your level. But see, that's different. Cultural peace is different than Christmas peace. Christmas peace comes from a Savior who became like us, a Savior in swaddling clothes, one that came not from the house of Caesar, it says, but from the house of David. See, he was a Savior who was put into a manger. You know, I've found over the years, I've realized that no one sings 
away in a feed trough. No one sings that. Why? Because manger's nicer. It's, it looks beautiful. It's got hay neatly packed. It's got little lights shining on it. Right? It's out in front of churches. Nativity scenes have it. It looks romantic. It looks really cool. Mary and Joseph with really nice clothes on. Can I tell you, it wasn't like that at all. You know what a feed trough, a manger is? It's where animals ate out of. But we don't like to think that. That's why we don't say away in a feed trough. No one sings that. Because that's not the kind of Savior we're looking for. Who could believe that peace could come from that? The answer, God. God says that, see, that's how peace comes. It doesn't come from the places or the people or the powers that you think it does. There's a contrast. And the angel's announcement that day, that if you went to Bethlehem, you would find that here would be the sign. Here's, you'll find a baby in a manger. See, that's the whole thing, isn't it? If God himself, to bring peace, went that low to humble himself, here's what he's saying. See, that's what you have to do to receive the peace. You have to let go of what you think is the source and the power. You have to let go of your image and what everybody would think of you. Oh, if I, if I accepted Jesus and took that peace, people will think I'm this or I'm sort of a religious fanatic. And, you know, if my whole life turned around, what would people say? And that's exactly right. See, that's the kind of humility it takes. The birth announcement wasn't just that he was born, but the significance of his birth. He is a savior who is what? Christ, which means king, the Lord. You know why, can I tell you as we close today, you know why it's hard to humble yourself? It's hard to accept that Jesus is the only way to have your sins forgiven, to know that you have eternal life, that you could have peace. You know why? Because he's not just a baby. He is Christ the Lord. He's the only king that gives forgiveness of sins. And so there's two things. Remember, we unpacked the first one. If you have peace, God's peace, you have to know there's a contrast. But secondly, you have to know there's a conflict. Verses 13 and 14 really bring that out for us. And they're the famous verses that everybody can quote pretty much. Glory to God, I'm sorry, and suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now listen, remember the word behold, had it got your attention? This is the second climax in this paragraph. And so here's what the shepherds are, the angels are, this one angel, one angel is talking to them, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a multitude, and you got to understand multitude here means thousands, maybe tens of thousands. So you imagine one angel was scary enough, right? But now you got 10,000. Now watch. It's more than that. It's a, it's a multitude of the heavenly host. You know what heavenly hosts mean? It means armies. So don't imagine angels in nice white robes with some little halo over their head and shining and speaking real nice. These are guys dressed in full-out armor, all the way top to bottom. They're wearing swords. They've got shields. And if other passages are true in 2 Kings 6, and other places are, are obviously literal, these guys have flaming swords, and they're riding flaming chariots. And I'm telling you, you are blowing the shepherds' minds. Because <laughs> these guys are, this is the army like you've never seen an army. You know why? Listen, because Christmas means there's a war going on. There's a conflict. 
Israel made the mistake, and you might be making it too. See, they thought the conflict was between Roman armies and Israel armies. It was not. It was, but it wasn't the main one. Can I tell you nicely, that was just a distraction. We have battles and wars and conflicts going on in our world, and we have them between nations. We have them internally in nations. We have conflicts going on, people committing violence in our own country. We have racism. We have all kinds of problems, and they all need to address. But can I tell you this? Compared to the conflict, they are results only and distractions. Do you know what the real conflict is and why the angelic armies came on that day? Because the conflict wasn't new. It was a conflict that had been going on for hundreds of thousands of years. It was a conflict that started between God and the evil one and Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned. It wasn't a conflict between man and man. It was a conflict between God and man. And we had sinned against God and God had rejected us from his presence. And God says, you know why Jesus came? You know why there's a war and a conflict going on? Because I'm going to reverse that. I am going to make a way for mankind to come back into my presence. The greatest battle today is not anything you'll see on TV. It's not a physical battle between armies with guns. It's a spiritual one. Ephesians 6 says in verse 10, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. See, this is a choice today between two kingdoms. This is a choice today between two types of king. See, glory to God in the highest. That's his kingdom Jesus said before Pontius Pilate in John 18, if my kingdoms were of this world, my followers would fight. But he's not of this world. This is not a flesh and blood battle. This isn't something to take over America and make it Christian. This isn't about any of those things. This is about the battle that's been going on And that means this, that God in the highest has to bring peace on earth. And the only way that the warfare and enmity between God and man could ever cease is through Jesus. You know why he came? Because he's the rightful king. Caesar is a knockoff. He's a pretender. He's phony. And so everything with him is. This world offers all of those things through governments and agencies and all kinds of methodologies. Can I tell you this? It's just a knockoff. It'll never satisfy. It'll never meet the needs of your heart. Only through the rightful king, King Jesus, can it ever happen. There is no question, biblically speaking, that Jesus is king. But there is a question in whether he is your king. See, he came to be your savior, to save you from your sin. But it's not just to change your destiny. He didn't just say, hey, you're going to hell, and if you trust in me, you're going to heaven. That is a wonderful thing, and it's absolutely amazing. But he came as a savior because he was Christ. He was the Lord. He was the true king. See, we have this thing in our lives. We're committed to the idea in our natural hearts that we really can't be happy unless we are wholly in charge of our lives. See, that's why there's a conflict between God and us and us and others. 
See, we are hostile, naturally hostile to God's right to Lord be the Lord of our lives and the authority of our lives. We don't like it, and that's why we have no peace. That's why you're here this morning. There might be people here, and your life is upset, and there's turmoil, and there's chaos, and you don't know how to handle it or respond to it. Can I tell you this? There's a possibility that the reason that is is that you aren't yielded to his authority. Oh, you love him as Savior. If he would save me from my sins so that when I die, I go to heaven, who wouldn't want that? But add to that that he said, I am Christ the Lord. I'm the king. I'm the authority. See, we don't want that. We want the change of our destiny, but we don't want the change of our desires, and we certainly wouldn't want him telling us how to live our lives. There's no peace on earth because there's no peace with God. And can I close with this? There are basically two ways to express your hostility toward God. There is the irreligion per, irreligious person. You know how irreligious people express their hostility? It's one that everybody can obviously see. It's a covert independence from God. Here's what they say. I will not have anyone tell me how I'm going to live. And you can look at the results of that all around our culture. Behaviorally, morally, educationally, intellectually. When you put God out of the equation, the evolution and abortion, and it's, just, it's endless. And, and that's not hard to figure out that when you are covertly hostile to God that you'd rather have them not in the schools and you don't want people praying and you shouldn't be able to tell them about the Lord. And, and see, see, that's where our culture by and large is. And all of us sitting in a church today, you know, we understand they're irreligious person. And their lifestyle, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. But that's only one type of hostility against God. That's the covert kind. But see, there is a, see, there is a, um, not overt, but co- overt is the first one. Covert is the second one, meaning it's hidden. It's not as easy to perceive. That's what covert is. And that's the religious person. Independence from God. See, it's not just the rule breakers that are hostile to him. It's the rule keepers. It's people who, like some of us, sit in pews and say, I go to Bible, the church, I have my Bible, I open it up, God says this. See, here's what we say. I will do all the things God wants me to do, and then he is going to have to bless me and give me a good life. See, that's using God. That's an effort to control him, not to trust him. And when you do that, see, that is a covert, hidden, below the surface, hostility to God. When you obey God to control him, God, I go to church. Have you ever said, God, I go to church. I try to live right. I'm moral. I don't watch that stuff on the internet. I don't do, see, and see, and you say, and therefore, God, why would anything ever go wrong in my life? Why am I not married yet? God, why haven't you given me that promotion? Why did I get that diagnosis? Why did that relationship break up? See, it's covert. It's insidious. See, we try to control God by obeying God and think that when we do, that he owes us something. See, both of those approaches, they don't allow Jesus to be your savior or your sovereign. That's why there's a conflict, and you have to recognize that. If you're going to have God's peace, you have to recognize that there's a conflict between you and God. Can I give you this example? And let me tell you what it would sound like. Here's what it would sound like. Not only, God, have I done bad things, 
But even the good things that I have done, I have done to be my own savior. See, until you can come to that place in your life and say, God, this isn't about my performance. It's not about my power. It's not about who I am and what I've done. Because even the good things I've done, I have to be honest, God, I've done it to get something from you. And it's not peace. See, you need to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You cannot save yourself. You cannot reach up and make peace with God by yourself. You have to humble yourself. You have to get low like Jesus did. You have to admit that, see, he is king and you are not. That his cross death, the most humiliating act of all of history, is the only possible way that you could be forgiven. It's through his death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection on the third day that you can have the peace that you're looking for. And in doing so, you have to give up the rights to everything in your life. That's why we miss it. And Luke says, listen, you have a choice today. You can keep going on in the world's offer of peace, which will never give you what you're looking for, or you can humble yourselves and say, I bow before the cross and I yield my life to the only one, the only king who is Savior and Lord of all. And here's what the Bible says. He came to bring peace to those that are pleasing to him. That's what God is looking for. Let me ask you, do you have his peace? Are you pleasing to him? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want you to know I'll be here just a couple minutes after the service. You can always call the church anytime during the week. If you are tired of finding peace in all the wrong people and places, and God through his word and the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart this morning, you say, Pastor Walker, I want to do a peace exchange. I want to let go of the world's peace that I hold on to so dearly, and I want to let go of it because I need the peace that only comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I need him as my Savior and my Lord. Please come up and see me after the service. We'll set up an appointment to get together. Call me during the week, any of our staff members. We'd love to share the good news with you some more so that you could find the peace that you're looking for that only comes through faith in King Jesus. We're going to sing a song in a moment, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to welcome in some new members. Please let God give you his peace today if you humble your heart. Father, help us. There are some people even now, perhaps at home watching or in the service today, that are battling. It's very difficult to humble ourselves to that degree, to give up our authority, to yield ourselves that much. But it is the path of peace. I pray, Father, that you would help them Give them brokenness and repentance that only is a gift from you. They might turn themselves away from the peace that the world offers. It's the knockoff. It's a phony. May they come to that understanding and turn to Jesus by faith and find everlasting peace from the only one who can forgive our sins. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing. In Jesus' name, our King, we pray. Amen.